Welcome to the Weekend Universities podcast. If you are hearing this, you're not currently subscribed to our premium membership and therefore only getting a partial version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the full version and access our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors and authors, along with CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes and unlimited access to recordings from our annual online conference, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership for more information. Okay, Wendy, um, to get started, you know, I'm curious to ask, before we get into the, to REBT, um, I noticed in preparing for this interview that you have authored or edited over 240 books. So... No, I'm that's just, not correct. What is it? What's the number now? 262. Well, you need to update your website then. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Yes, good point. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, two hundred sixty-two books. Um, how you know? How have you managed to do that? And I know you've done a lot of work in procrastination as well. So I'm just curious, what what would you attribute that abil- the ability to be that effective to? Because I'm sure everybody listening to this would would be curious would, would be curious to know that. Well, some would say writing the same book at two hundred sixty-two times, but if we put that aside. Um, I think it's look. I think it, it's about it's a it's about being focused. I when I'm in writing mode, I set myself realistic targets, a minimum of five hundred words a day. I often exceed that, um, but I I I will kind of write until I've done five hundred words, and then if more come, then more come. But then uh, I just uh, you know seem to be fairly organised and structured in my thinking. And um, you know, and and off we go. And you find? Do you find by setting the bar at five hundred words that seems realistic and achievable? And then anything above that as a bonus. So every day you feel like you're sort of you're winning. I'm ahead of the game. I like being ahead of the game, not being behind the game. So I always recommend that people, uh, you know, set realistic targets to get ahead of the game. Because often people leave it and then right at the end, they've got about 20,000 words to write in about a day and a half. Now, they often do that, which shows what the human being is capable, um, given the right conditions. But I don't want to structure my life like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, So, yeah, everybody, if you want to publish over 262 books in your life, just write 500 words a day every day and um, that'll get you there. Um, so next, Wendy, could you tell us about your general specific approach to psychotherapy that you've taken over the years? My general specific? Yeah, general right. and specific approach. General and specific. Well, um, look, I think that um, I, I see that in a way that the understandings offered by Albert Ellis, who I think, in, you know, the more I kind of get to know his stuff, the more I think he was a genius because he he saw quite clearly many years ago, you know, even before CBT had ever been dreamed of, that the the role that what he called beliefs, what I call attitudes, play in the role of human disturbance in health. Uh, and so I've always been guided by that, 
way of looking at um, you know the way people tick, so to speak. But and I think there is a structure to REBT, which I think is important. You know that uh, that's useful. But I've I've always been sort of guided by other ideas, the working alliance theory that's been um, put forward by Ed uh, Baldin in a paper in 1979. Uh, I've been influenced by, you know, contributions to eclecticism, integration, and now pluralism over the years, which is really saying, look, don't take a uni, sort of a unitary approach to, to helping people. You know, be mindful that people are different and, and are going to require different different approaches. Um, and I've been really kind of influenced by you know by that. Um, and I think what I've been kind of interested in as well recently, as we spoke last time, is 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 to be able to to really help people as as quickly as 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 possible, and to offer them, you know the number of sessions that they are prepared to commit to therapy. And so I, in all my general practice, now I ask people how many sessions they are willing to commit themselves. And once you ask them that question, you get, you don't, they don't say years. They, they say, you know, three sessions or between one and four. And so I think that also guides my thinking. Um, uh, so yeah, those are the, those are the kind of, um, you know, mixture of the specific and the general. It's really interesting. Now, there you mentioned pluralistic therapy. Um, yeah. In your view, what's the main difference between pluralism and integrative approaches to therapy? Well, I think in a way at heart, they are sort of similar in a way that, that basically uh, the idea of, of actually you need to modify your approach to, to, to actually to the person who's who's in front of you. But I think they differ in the sense that in pluralism, there's much more of an emphasis on, on the client directing the process, which I like, you know, I mean, uh, I think that's important. And the idea that, that you know, take a, a both and approach rather than an either or approach to, you know, to things. And, you know, I think there's a, a book, I don't know if you'll be, you know, interviewing Nick Cooper, but he and John Norcross did an important book called um, Personalising Psychotherapy, which I think is a is basically kind of centred around client preferences. I don't think they actually spent much time asking clients about how long therapy should take, but rather what, you know, what they're looking for from therapy. And uh, um, it's interesting in books like that, they, it tends to ignore the fact that, you know, as I've said in our last interview, that the mode, uh, the mode of number of sessions that people have across the world is one, followed by two, followed by three. Now that that you know, we need to be appraised about that. We need, we can't afford to ignore it. And so, um, so I think that you know, although we're going to be talking about REBT today, I think it's important for me to say that I embed that in a much broader view of psychotherapy and the human change process and and also how to you know how to the stance that you take towards people i, I mean i just kind of you know read a, a blog that's a, a, one of my cbt colleagues that i knew years ago took takes and he's talking about about the fact that in in iapt he's quite critical of iapt 
but and he's talking about you know uh, that the, all the decisions that are made about the uh, uh, the patient are made by therapists and the teams. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, yeah, but what about the client? You know, the client is centre to the process. It's not, you know, the client is not somebody to kind of follow the professional's lead. At the very least, we should be active co-creators of, of therapy. But I think, you know, um, the therap- the client should point the way. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in in that. Uh, the client should, should point the way. And I think the therapist should follow that unless the therapist thinks that following that lead is going to be you know detrimental to the client in which case they need to have an open and honest discussion about that i'm not i'm not necessarily advocating that you go along with everything the client says because you've got a voice and you've got an opinion and you need to sort of you know engage the client in that kind of discussion but to 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 not you know to not you know if somebody comes for help what do they want to you know what do they want to leave with at the end of the session um, is, is something that I think is a, a, such an important question to ask people. Just a quick break here to tell you about an exciting new membership we're developing, and then we'll get right back to the show. This gets you access to our mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information. Is it fair to say that your basic frame towards therapy then is that the therapist is an active co-creator of the therapy, but you're letting the client lead the way? Yes, but also that the th- each therapist has got their own view, which I think they need to bring and be open about. And so I often say to people, are you interested in, I mean, it depends on the context. So, so for example, straight after this, I'm going to be doing a demonstration um, for the Rashly Motive Behaviour Therapy Facebook group, right? And so guess what? I'm going to be doing REBT on that. Why? Because that's what I've been asked to do, you know? And so, you know, if you're going to agree to do something, then, you know, step up to the plate and do it. Um, But in other arenas, um, I might say to somebody, are you interested in my take on the subject? And then I'll, I'll outline kind of basically an REBT view of it, which if it makes sense to the person, we use it, and if it doesn't make sense to the person, we don't. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so as you've taken this general and specific approach and you've you've explored many different sort of modalities of therapy, um, it seems that you, you know, you've dedicated a lot of time to writing books on REBT, and that seems to be the one that you've sort of aimed towards mastery in almost. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, what, why did you decide on REBT versus other forms? And what are the benefits of REBT versus other forms of psychotherapy as you, as you see them? Well, it, it, in order for me to answer that, I'll have to take you back on a little journey back to 
back to the day when 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 Professor Dryden wasn't Professor Dryden and he had a head of hair. And so I got into the field when I was 24. I trained uh, on a full-time uh, course in client-centered therapy. This is before person-centered therapy was even, uh, even thought about. So it's client-centered therapy. And I, I, I liked the theory of client-centered therapy, although I thought it was a bit, it, it, it's a, you know, it's a, got a great theory uh, about the self. I think it doesn't really have much to say about, you know, when people's problems don't relate to, you know, their self-worth and, and you know, and those things. But I like the theory. I just didn't like the practice. I just thought, I just thought it was, it didn't really fit. And so I did, a, a, I experimented with a with a psychodynamic course and I was even less enamored with that and then I kind of you know got in because we actually studied other approaches and I resonated most with REBT now I think this is an interesting point now I think I think having said that you know we should be giving ourselves um to you know reprioritizing the client I think we also have to recognize that in this business we're not just applying theories and techniques because we are people, therapists are people. And, and I think that unlike medicine, where I think it's much more of a technical, yes, it's important that, you know, doctors have a good kind of bedside manner and, and all the rest of it, not knocking that. But I think it does matter, um, you know, what, therapists bring to it, to it. And so I resonated with REBT, both according to the model of human disturbance and health that it articulated and its fairly active directive approach to actually engaging people in conversation. And so um, when you last asked me to nominate um, three books that I would recommend, one of them was called Embodied Theory. And the reason I recommended that is because that book looks at um, the importance of the therapist really, really living a life that was, is underpinned by some of the ideas that inform their practice. And so I don't want to be the kind of person that believes one thing outside of the therapy room and something else inside of the therapy room. So a number of years ago, when CBT became popular and, you know, jobs in CBT were, 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 were more popular than, than other posts for other approaches. You had people like psychodynamic um, therapists wanted to train in CBT. Did that mean they had a sudden conversion to the model? No, what it meant was they needed to earn a living and they couldn't really do that unless they actually kind of retrained it in that. So I, I, I'm glad I never had to do that. I'm glad that, it, that in a way that I could actually approach the business of doing therapy from a position of, of, of being authentic um, and being transparent to clients about what, what I'm offering them. So there was a there was a very close resonance between myself and REBT, and that's what drew me, you know, you know. To it doesn't mean that I'm not I haven't drawn upon other 
you know other approaches but the thing i the, re the reason i call rebt is a good example of what i call theoretically consistent eclecticism is that you're borrowing from approaches but you're but you're doing it in the service of 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 this particular approach but also you're flexible enough to lay aside that in the service of the client got you got you so for somebody that is you know, in their very early stages of their career as a therapist, do you think it's important to go through a period of exploration to see which type of approach sort of resonates with you most? And then maybe yes, get yes, into that? yes, I, I definitely do. And I think that's why, although I valued the kind of grounding that uh, my initial training in client centered therapy had, because you know, I think it's a good it's a good discipline in kind of listening, understanding the client from the client's frame of reference, it, you know, communicating your understanding of what they're saying. All these are good basic counselling skills. Now, I know that person-centred therapy is a lot more than that, but I think we learned some good basic counselling skills. And, I'm all, and I always kind of, I always recommend that people always start off with a good grounding and basic, you know, counselling skills. Um, you know, one of my, I, I, I supervise an REBT colleague of mine, and he's a lovely chap. And he, he knows his REBT, but he, he has lacked that, that grounding in basic counselling skills. So I've said to him, go off, get that grounding, you know, uh, you know to, and to give him his due because he's open-minded. He's taken that and he's actually gone off to, uh, 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 to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that you get that grounding but you also need to, to see what's out there, right? To, to actually read around and to see what's, you know, what's out there. And, um, and so I was lucky enough to be a student of Richard Nelson Jones, who ran the, the Aston Counseling uh, course. And he, he wrote an excellent book called The Theory and Practice of Counseling and Psychotherapy. And he was, the lectures that he gave were began life that his book began life as the lectures that he gave his students and so we had a good introduction to REBT to um uh, to psychodynamic cognitive behavior therapy really wasn't you know I mean it was just it you know Beck's first book his 1976 book hadn't come out yet so you know that wasn't something that we studied because it hadn't, hadn't been created yet. I mean, it did created, but it hadn't been happening, certainly in Britain. Um, and uh, Gestalt therapy, transaction analysis, we had a good grounding in that. And so I was able to, to, to actually kind of determine that, that person-centered therapy, unlike my good friend and late colleague, Pete Sanders, who you may know, who um went on to 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 create pccs books he he was he's he's, he's a lifelong person-centered therapist it's, it's in his bones you know mm. and and that's not for me because i'm not pete and so i felt that that i was giving a pale imitation of being a, a client-centered therapist well whereas he was was the real deal and so uh, he would struggle practicing REBT. I struggled practicing person-centered therapy. So I think, I think there is that added dimension in our work, which 
which other uh, uh, in other approaches don't seem to to have the importance of 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 what the person holds dear and 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 can and can say you know i put this into practice in my own life i think that's really important if you're going to be advocating something you know practice what you preach 100% you know like it just if it makes sense that if you're going to be doing something every day and trying to help people improve their quality of life with a certain approach that you better really believe in it and you better really yeah it needs to to fit you know um so next question Wendy um how for someone who's never heard of REBT before and this is a complete introduction how would you explain it to them like how would you explain this to a 10 year old for example if you had to if you had to a 10 year old yes well there's the challenge um that's kind of difficult to explain to a 10 year old uh about um well i mean first of all i'd, I'd make the point to the 10 year old in some way that it's it's not it's not what happens to you that 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 um that uh, is the main thing that determines your feelings, but but how you think about it. I mean, I wouldn't use words like attitudes necessarily, or or, or, or beliefs to a ten-year-old. So I would, I'd make that that point, and then, you know, um, you know, take it from from there. But if I was if I was explaining it to somebody a little bit more advanced in years, I would make the point as I often do is that that um that we start off as human beings with with desires and preferences we all have what that you know a sense of what's important to us and and that's what what makes us human your what's important to you now is different from what's important to me and so we need to recognize our you know what's our desires our preferences what's important to us and that's not the problem. It's what happens when the world does not give us what's important to us. It's then how, how do we respond to that? And what Ellis says is that you can either, you take your what's important to you and your desires, and you can make them rigid uh, and extreme or keep them, pref keep them flexible and non-extreme. And so, you know, you presumably, it matters to you that the weekend university is a success, and that's going to that's going to that's going to kind of guide your, uh, you know, your your efforts. But I think it's important, you know, if for you to deal with what happens if it's not a success. You know, are you gonna are you gonna take a flexible mindset? Um, as I, you know, increase it, people seem to resonate with the idea of mindset these days rather than beliefs and attitudes. And I, you know, I believe in in sort of, you know, um, putting things that people can readily, you know, respond to. It makes a difference between whether you take a, a flexible mindset um, to 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 adversity. And adversity really means this is an event where you are not getting what you want, or or that you're getting what you don't want, right? Uh, it could be a minor event or it could be a major event. And so what REBT says is that if you can hold 
to a flexible mindset in the face of that adversity. It then gives you a lot of room to maneuver in terms of what to do, how to think, how to step back. You're rolling with the punches. If you're rigid, you're kind of, you're, 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 you've got a, a sort of fixed mindset, your tunnel vision, your behavior gets sort of stereotyped. You can't think clearly and you're, and you're, there's a tendency to keep on doing the same things over and over again. So, so I think that's, that's why I like um, REBT because it's really, it's really advocating something which I think is a guiding principle uh, which is associated with mental health. And I think in some ways, Stephen Hayes says this in different ways with his uh, approach to acceptance and commitment therapy, and that is flexibility. Flexibility of, of mindset, of attitude, and then that will lead you to, to be flexible in terms of your behavior. And so REBT is saying the more flexible you are, then the, uh, the more um, relative you are in terms of the, uh, the evaluations that you make of yourself, other people in the world, and the more you'll be able to navigate these adversities that life, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, gives us. Um, and so, you know, the thing I like about REBT is saying, well, look, you know, let's not talk too much about whether, you know, this person likes you or not, you know, let's not necessarily spend much time looking at the evidence whether they like you or not till afterwards let's assume temporarily that the person doesn't like you now how are you going to deal with that it's possible that they don't going to like you you know um and i think that in a way one of the things that that we need to do in this in this world and i think that there's some some sort of illustrations of education which is which is troubling not to me but a lot of people which is you know, we have to protect people from adversity in case they get upset, you know. And I say, don't do that because you're not encouraging them to be psychologically resilient. You know, I'm not, su I'm not suggesting that you kind of deliberately, you know, sort of introduce adversity just for, just for that purpose. So in REBT, uh, we say, well, let's suppose, let's suppose that this person doesn't like you. Let's suppose that the, the weekend university is going to fall flat on its face. Let's suppose that the next time, you know, you go to the doctor, Professor Dryden, they say, I'm, I'm awfully sorry, but you're terminally ill. Let's suppose that. Now, how are we, how are we all going to deal with those adversities? You know, you know um, and then once, we, once we've got that in our, in our sort of repertoire, we're then able, I think, to look more clearly at the world and assess the likelihood of the weekend university, you know, going, going, uh, you know, to greater heights or, or disappearing, you know, to what extent my, you know, how I'm going to kind of live my life, you know, in the few years that I might have after this sort of terminal illness, or in fact, maybe I'll be able to kind of do things to surprise the doctors after all, you know, people do. So, you know, it gives you a great, greater, degrees of freedom in which to live your life. And I'm all about helping people to kind of, you know, to expand their lives rather than contract them. Really interesting. It reminds me of a couple of things. Um, there's a quote from Eckhart Tolle. It's like, whatever the present moment contains, 
um, accept it as if you had chosen it. And then another thing I've heard, we interviewed Stephen Hayes a couple, a couple of years ago on psychological flexibility. And the big thing I took away from Stephen's work is just to have a, a basic orientation to life, to just to love, love what is, you know, whatever's happening, just try and love it, you know? Um, well, you see, uh, this is where I'm going to depart from, 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 from two people who are far more wise and well-known, you know, than I am. Because, I, you know, if somebody tells me that I'm, I'm going to die in two years' time, right, I'm going to love that. I'm going to hate it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with hating it, you know. Um, I'm going to accept it because, for me, acceptance means that is the reality. Mm. But accepting it, you know, includes, for me, that is the reality, and I really don't like it, and I really wish it was different. So, um, and so I would also disagree with, with Eckhart in Tolley that, you know, okay, in the moment, you know, there are certain moments that, you know, you should definitely love or certain moments you should definitely hate, you know. Um, when I was many years ago after my bar mitzvah in the, in the synagogue, when I was saying a speech in English and I was stammering like there's no tomorrow, in that moment, I hated it. I don't want to embrace, I don't think it's, it's great to embrace that. Yeah. You're lying to yourself if you do that. And I'm not a great believer in encouraging people to lie to themselves. So if you, if something is an adversity and you really don't like it, there's nothing wrong with really not liking it, you know. <laughs> and I'm not, so I, I'm not, I'm not an embracer of adversity. I'm an acceptor of, of adversity, but not an, uh, an embracer of, of university, of, of, of university. Of adversity, right? Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so next question, Wendy. Um, what would you say the foundational principles that REBT is built upon? And maybe if you could start here with telling us about the the ABC frame, framework. Well, the ABC framework is, you know, it, it, you could look at it as a simple framework, or if you go into it. In any great depth, you can actually—it's actually quite a complicated framework. But, but simply speaking, you know, um, as we go along in life, as I say, we have our preferences, and something happens which goes against our preferences, and these are adversities, you know. And there are a whole host of adversities in life, and um, as as uh, Aaron Beck um, outlined in his 1976 book, Cognitive Therapy and the Emotional Disorders, which I still recommend that people read. I think it's a fantastic book because what it showed there is the kind of adversities that lead to different emotions. So you've got threat, you know, something happens to you. And I like the idea of, again, that Beck came up with, which is the personal domain. That is the domain that, um, which includes things that we hold dear. Each person's personal domain is unique, you know? If you had a twin brother, your twin brother and your identical twin, likely there's going to be overlap in, in your personal domain, but also likely there's, uh, uh, there's going to be uniqueness. You may look the same, but certain things you know, will be different. And so what Beck says is that we have a personal domain and certain things can happen that could threaten it. And when we, um, and so threat, is an important adversity, LA. Um, 
loss and failure and unfair plight are adversities that are associated with, with depression. Um, uh, transgression of a moral code of one's own is associated with guilt. And in another person, trans transgression of a personal code is going to be related to anger. And what um, I think what I like about RABT is really saying these adversities on their own only put you into the zone of experiencing negative emotions. And so it's healthy to feel sad if you've lost something. It's healthy to be concerned if you feel under threat. It's healthy to feel remorseful if you've broken a moral code. But, you know, the unhealthy negative emotions, and this is why, again, I think one of the REPT ideas that I like, the difference between constructive or healthy negative emotions and unhealthy negative emotions argues that the rigid and extreme attitudes that you have towards adversity leads you into the business of experiencing unhealthy negative emotions and the behavior and type of thinking that goes along with that. And the flexible and non-extreme attitudes that you hold towards the same adversities lead you to, to feel healthy negative emotions. So uh, REBT is basically often, often, you know, saying to people, you know, um, and I, I, I do that to sometimes get people's attention. I say, well, I can help you to feel badly about this. And they look at me and say, well, I'm already feel badly about this. I said, I said, no, you're, you've got the kind of badness that leads to disturbance and leads you to kind of, you know, to self-defeat. I'm going to help you to feel healthily bad about that. We don't have, in general, a concept of, of, of to feel bad, but healthy. And, uh, and this is one of the things that, that I, I find that I, I, often, I often introduce to people. And they've often never even thought about it. So, so the ABC is adversity times rigid and extreme attitudes leads to emotional disturbance. Um, the same adversity plus flexible and non-extreme attitudes leads to emotional dissatisfaction. If I can make a distinction between dissatisfaction and disturbance to indicate the distinction between healthy and negative, uh, healthy and unhealthy negative emotions. And I think that you know RABT is you know because it, it it does have this sort of viewpoint of you know rigid versus you know there's not you know you're either rigid or you're flexible you, you, you know there's not people say isn't it a continuum and I say no it's not because at the very time if you're rigid it's very difficult to be flexible and the very and when you're flexible you know you're not going to be rigid so they are. They are they are different, and and to actually help people to, to see that flexible mindset is something that that they can develop in the same way as they can develop other skills, because they need to practice it. They need to, rather than hide away from adversity, they need to approach it if that's not you know self defeating for them to do that. Um, in the same way, I mean, again, even before I even even got interested in therapy, I, I developed this um, fear of um, of uh, Alsatians because I was bitten when I was I was a youngster, and then I would I found myself every time I saw an Al an Alsatian getting anxious and moving across the road, and I th I thought about this for a minute, and I, 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 for a while, and I thought, no, this is not going to help me. 
next time I see an Alsatian, even though I'm a, either either though I'm I'm frightened, I'm going to approach it and try to make friends with it if I can, or or at least you know. Um, and so that's what I did, and you know, I very soon lost my fear. And that taught me an important thing that even though that you are fearful, you can still take action. That's not a new thing. Um, do I do I like Alsatians? Not particularly. Uh, am I afraid of them? No. Because um, uh, after a while, what you learn is that the if you were attacked by one Alsatian and then you meet a hundred Alsatians that didn't attack you, <laughs> you change your inferences. Um, uh, and, and so that was another thing that I actually kind of, you know, learned. So, so again, I, I realized at the time when I was much younger that I was actually putting into practice REBT type ideas. And that's why I say, I, I kind of looking back, I resonated with that. So, um, yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting. Now, I don't know if I'm getting this, this right or not. Right. I'm just going to throw this out there. So, the, the model is basically the the A is adverse, uh, like an ad adversity, adverse situation. And then the B is, is that for beliefs? And Well, yes. You see, they, um, Ellis called it beliefs because it started with a B. I call it, I call it, in order to preserve the B, I call it basic attitudes because it's B and the attitudes are, are at the base or at the foundation of people's response. So for me, A is adversity, B are the basic attitudes that you can hold towards the adversity, the rigid and extreme or flexible and non-extreme, and C are the consequences, emotional, behavioral, and um, uh, cognitive consequences of each of those different kind of basic attitudes. So it seems that our default view for, for most most of us is that it's without thinking about it, it's more just A to C and there's less of the less of the B. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, um, in fact, one of the one of the things, one of the first um assignments I used to give my master's students is to watch soap operas and make a note of AC language, you know. <laughs> you piss me off, you know, you you you're scaring me, you know. That kind of thing. And so, you know, um, yeah, we, you know, we, and this whole business of, 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 you know, it's a whole different ballgame. I don't particularly want to get into it now, but the whole business of trauma these days, um, you know, what is trauma? Is it an adversity? Is it response? Is it, is it a way of processing information? Is it all of those three? You know, it's, it's kind of difficult, you know, difficult, but, but if we leave that alone, you know, just for the for the time being, the the idea to actually have people to take responsibility without blaming themselves for holding the attitudes that that are that are related, and I often say that okay, yes, it's your attitude, but that's good news because you can always change your attitude. You can't always change adversity. Mm. If you know, if adversity really does make you disturbed then the only way you can not be disturbed is to change the adversity or remove yourself from the adversity. And that's no way to live a life. 100%. Now, unless the adversity is, is you know, is violence, domestic abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Not, I'm not suggesting that you should stay and 
um, you know, put up with that. But I am suggesting that that you know to, to you know that we that we need we need to train our children. I think to actually to actually not not you know to recognize that that they can face adversity um, and they can be helped to face adversity and to feel and to feel badly when adversity comes. You know, we don't need to protect children from feeling bad. It's part of you know it's part of living life. So then is the goal of REBT essentially to help people see that there is a B between um, between the A and C and then focus on um, increasing the flexibility of of the B so that they can they're more fluid with life and they're less ideally rigid. ideally if people are interested in that and again I do I do do kind of you know relate to what I said much earlier on I'm I'm interested in in what people are interested in. I'm not necessarily interested in in selling, you know, something which I think is important to them that they think is you know doesn't really hold much of difference. But but you know I, I think you know for me if I can actually help people to leave you know to leave a session or to leave a number of sessions you know really saying okay then I can see that I'm that I'm gonna work towards becoming more flexible in my in my mindset. And and you know learn to take the horror out of events, learn to accept myself, others in the world, and learn to tolerate or, or learn to bear things which I which I previously thought were unbearable. Then I think you know those are real good skills: flexibility of mindset, taking the horror out of things, kind of uh, bearing what you thought was unbearable, and accepting other people, yourself, and the world. If you did that and really, and listen, this is a this is a work in progress. Um, this is not something that you can easily after one session get, but it is something you can work towards. Um, and we're going to struggle with it. Why? Because we're human. You know, you know, if we had a rational robot, we could take out the rigid mindset and put in the in the flexible mindset, and that'd be it. But but human beings don't work that way. Hundred um, percent. So I maybe like to just maybe dive a bit deeper into this this aspect of our EBT. Um, and you know, you call them basic attitudes, but how might a therapist identify or help to identify a client's basic attitudes that are causing them causing them difficulty in life? Like, how might they identify the places where the rigid rigidity exists? Well, you use the causation word, and we're not saying that um, you know attitudes cause anything. What we're saying, and what Ellis said right at the beginning of, of the idea, is that is that you know the the you know things interact. You know, um, so our beliefs about or our attitudes towards events interact with our tendencies to act and think and feel in a certain way. And and so uh, often changing attitudes, you can you can you can work to, towards changing attitudes or at least beginning that that process because you know you've got a choice between you know the rigid and uh, and the flexible and you know you can actually think about that stand back and engage your your mind in actually that particular um, you know way of actually looking at it. But I think you know what we do, we do have a structure, and that and that we often start with a specific instance of a of a person's problem 
and we look at you know their emotions first you know and um then we find out what the person was most disturbed about so we we start off with the emotional c and then we look for the a and then when we've got that um our job is to help people to see that they have choices in terms of what attitudes that they have and which which attitude does under underpin their you know their response so um um and this is what I do every week at five o'clock on a Tuesday for the REBT Facebook group. I do half an hour demonstration sessions where I'm doing just that. Um, and so, you know, once you've got that, you can then help help people to see what they can do to, to actually develop a more flexible and, um, you know, less extreme mindset, how they can actually you know, put that into practice and how they can then generalize that learning to other areas of their life. Because, you know, this, the, these attitudes are, you know, are really important for life, not just, not just for Christmas. hundred percent. So you're essentially, you identify to, to, to figure it out, you identify, identify the, the C, the, the, what's the disturbances, and then you link that with the, the adversity that has caused or that has brought led to those circumstances and then you're trying to work on the b then between between those two things yeah you help people to make a distinction between the flexible and um non-extreme b and the rigid and extreme b and ask them which one underpins their response and how the, how would they feel if they really believe the other one right and people can see that if they really believe that one, the, the flexible and non-extreme mindset, then they would be much better off. And so I say, would you like me to help you to actually you know, develop that? See, and, and of course, you know, people have got objections. They often people say, oh, I need my rigidity. If I don't have my rigidity, you know, you know, if I don't believe I have to get up in the morning, I wouldn't get up. Well, you know, then you've got a whole host of doubts, reservations, and objections that a good REBT therapist would be able to kind of help you to work towards. But that, that your musts are based on your desires and it's your desires that get you up and it's your musts that often lead you back to bed rather than, uh, rather than get you up. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, um, and it's quite, you know, the therapist is quite active and this is why... I think initially, um, I think at the time when when Ellis was was actually developing his ideas, therapy was a much more therapists were much more uh, inactive and quiet, and you know, and and so it was it was quite shocking when he came along and you know found that he was he was talking quite a lot you know, at the beginning because there's an educative aspect of REBT, you know. Um, but I think now, um, you know, in modern psychotherapy, as, as one of my colleagues you know, put it, it's much more conversational where both parties are active. Um, and, you know, now I think clients really struggle to make, make sense when, when therapists are, are silent and inactive, unless they have a, a way of understanding that, they find that quite, quite disconcerting. 
And you could never accuse Albert Ellis of being quiet and inactive in therapy. You can accuse him of a lot of things, but being quiet and inactive in therapy, you can't. 100%. Okay, so we've only got a few minutes left, Wendy, and there's three questions that I really want to ask you. And if I don't get to ask you them all, I'm going to be a bit gutted. So I'm going to ask you them all at once, and hopefully you can get through them. All right? Yeah. So the first thing is here, this seems to revolve around helping clients to change their basic attitudes so what what has you what have you found most effective for for doing that in therapy you know what 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 strategies can people do to actually you know what practical things can people do to, to change that the second thing is um what basic attitudes towards life have best served you over the years what what have you found most beneficial in your own your own life your own work just to just to to keep in mind and then the final thing is if you could plant a belief or a basic attitude in the mind of everybody on the planet what would it be uh, well i'll take the last thing first and that is to think for yourself don't listen to anybody without without really thinking for yourself even if their name is windy dryden think for yourself i'll definitely plant that the first the first one well, actually, let's have a look at the second one first. I think that at different times in my life, I've, I've, I've benefited from taking the horror out of experience. I've certainly been able to kind of, you know, being able to tolerate and persist at various things. I, um, at one point in my life, um, when I left my job at Ass University, I took voluntary redundancy. I didn't get another job. Um, until the, uh, the 55th um, job applications. And I often say that I, I received 54 job rejections and zero self-rejections. So I think self-acceptance was definitely uh, helpful to me there. And, and the willingness to persist and keep going. I think I'm a great believer. Um, and learning along the way, you know, I'm not suggesting you do the same thing over and over again, but, but, but kind of persist and learn along the way um so what was the first one again um Neil? no strategies for changing basic attitudes uh, what have you found most effective well, as a way of opening up the discussion with people i asked them to take the two attitudes that they've got the rigid and extreme and the flexible and the non-extreme and i say okay it's your responsibility to teach a group of children it may be your own maybe children that that you know which one of those would you teach? Would you teach the children to be flexible and non-extreme in their attitudes towards adversity? Or would you teach them to be rigid? Would you teach people to be rigid, to view uh, adversity as horror, to believe that certain things are unbearable and to, and to, and to hate themselves, other people and, and the world along the way? Or would you teach them to be flexible in their attitudes, to be to be kind of relative in their appraisals of badness, to tolerate difficulties and to accept themselves and other people and the world along the way. People are not stupid. Of course, they're going to say that. That's fine. Now the door is open. Now you can have a discussion with them about, okay, would you like to be able to do that for yourself? And how would you stop yourself from doing that? And you're off and running. Brilliant. I love that. I love that. Okay. So, Wendy, I think that's pretty much all I've got time for. You've got another 
RIBT session on now with your with your Facebook group. So we'll let you yeah. go before you go. Um, for anybody that wants to learn more about your work, your work, your books, your trainings, um, how can they how can they find you online? And well, anybody- if they want to learn about REBT, I recommend that they go on the Albert Ellis Institute website, where the I'm I'm a core um, I'm a core faculty member of the Albert Ellis Institute, and so I would recommend that they go and um, um, you know go on. Um, uh, that website. If they want to see REBT in action, they should they should join the REBT Facebook group. And I have a book um, of transcripts of of some of those um, uh, sessions, and it's called REBT Live, which you can get on Amazon. And so any of those things I think are useful. But I, I really would suggest that people um, would be wise to go back to one of the books that I, one of the other books that I recommended you know, when you ask me to write the three, and that is Reason and Emotion in Psychotherapy. And if you can get hold of the first edition, which came out in 1962, that that is the one that, that excited me about REBT, and I do recommend that people have a look at, at that. Fantastic. Okay, Wendy, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you today and learn from you. And I just want to say thank you for all the great work that you're doing and the contribution you're making to your writing, your teaching and everything. It's incredible. So thank you. I'll let you go and I wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to a master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.